From Sarasota Memorial, this is HealthCast. A healthy dose of information from experts you can trust. Hi, everybody. Welcome to HealthCast. I'm Heidi Godman. In this episode, we're going to be talking all about advances in joint surgery and a few things in particular. One is a new approach to hip surgery that can get you back to an active lifestyle faster. Another is a new robot that's helping surgeons cut and position knee replacements with more precision than ever. The robot is called Rosa, and you're going to learn all about it. Our guest today is Dr. Ed Stolarski, a board-certified orthopedic surgeon with advanced training in minimally invasive joint replacement and complex revisions. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Heidi. These topics near and dear to my heart, and I'm very excited to discuss them with you. These are the kinds of things that you work on every day. And I want to start with hip surgery and hip replacement because I think so many people think of this as just this huge ordeal, but you're doing procedures that make that a little less of a giant recovery. So before we talk about that, tell me a little bit about traditional hip replacement versus minimally invasive. What's the difference? Well, first of all, you got to realize that hip replacement, even traditionally, is an incredibly wonderful operation. Um, high patient satisfaction rate, activities are returned to, um, but we could always make it better. There was a little too much guesswork, a little bit too much soft tissue cutting. So nowadays, what we're doing, we're taking the same type of implants, ceramic, plastic, titanium, and we're putting them in through a different approach that allows us to be more accurate. People recover quicker. We're doing them outpatient. Men are going home the same day uh, frequently. So making a big difference. And that for that traditional open approach, you had to make big incisions, mm-hmm. and then you move to minimally invasive, which is the smaller incision, right? Uh, true. But back to the traditional, there was too much guesswork. Isn't that horrible? The minimally invasive, which reduces soft tissue destruction, awesome. Anteriorly, we're, we're keeping them on their back. There's no more guesswork either. All right, so that's the new approach, the yeah. anterior approach. Yes. So in a traditional hip replacement, what do you have to do? You have to go in, you have to replace the joint, the ball, the socket, take off the top of the bone. Tell us mm-hmm. about that. Well, think, there's often different ways to get into your home, right? Front door, side door, back door. It's the same thing with a hip. Traditionally, we'd go through a posterior approach or through the back, and we do have to cut the muscles, and we have to make somewhat educated guesses on implants and leg lengths. And you know what the problem was? Worry about dislocation and popping the hip out. Next step was minimally invasive. We made the incision smaller, less blood loss, tried to increase your accuracy. Still too much guesswork. Anterior supine or the uh, anterior approach to the hip, now the patient's laying on their back. They're not laying on their side any longer. We put in that same thing that you're saying. We cut the head off. We put a cup in. We put the socket and put the the, um, stem in, put the hip together. But this is so nice. I can bring in fluoroscopy during the operation, which is like a fancy x-ray, and check to make sure everything's correct. And isn't it true that you're also sort of pushing the muscles out mm-hmm. of the way? You don't have to cut them. Yeah, there's no muscles cut. God gave us a nice door in the front. So we make our skin incision, then there's two muscles. It's called an internervous plane, so we don't have to cut any nerves either. We go between two muscles, and we're within the joint in a couple of seconds. Blood loss is less as well because we can visualize the vessels and ligate them before we, we have to cut them. And blood loss is a really big risk in any kind of a hip replacement, but it's yeah. less of a risk in the ASI approach? Depending on where you are with your learning curve, in, in my hands, yes. When I would do a posterior approach, typically the blood loss would be two or 300 cc's, which is about a quarter of a two-liter bottle of Coke. And now it's about 50 cc's. You, you can lose more blood with a bloody nose than with a hip replacement anteriorly. 
All right. So that that's something that's got to be reassuring. But not everybody mm-hmm. is going to be a candidate for this new anterior approach. Who makes mm-hmm. the best surgical candidate for that? Well, in, in my hands, if you need a hip, you're having it done anteriorly. There's no contraindications. There's no reason not to. Now, if you have a colostomy bag, which happens to be over the area where we're going to be operating, sure, we couldn't do it then. But there's virtually no primary total hip that I wouldn't do anteriorly. All right. So it sounds like it's uh, more of a benefit to the patient. You're going to have a faster recovery. How much faster? Are we talking weeks, days? What difference? Well, recovery is important. They're, they're up the same day, going home a couple hours or perhaps the next day. They're on a walker a couple days or not at all. Uh, they're on a cane after that. And that's really for balance to protect them from their surroundings um, and, of course, help them ambulate. That's only for a couple of days. So driving about two weeks and then PT is just short, frequent walks. All right. So what about for the traditional approach? Are you having that kind of a recovery also, or is it much worse? No, it's much, it's much worse. And, and the big thing is the precautions. Um, I'll give you an example. If I do a hip, say someone has a colostomy, I have to do them posteriorly. They can't bend. We're sitting fairly straight. They can't bend further than this. They have to sleep with a pillow between their legs on their back. They shouldn't cross their legs, and God forbid something falls on the floor. And hopefully they have a friend with them that can pick it up. And those are the hip precautions to keep the hip from popping out. Anteriorly, we don't have any precautions. So potentially anybody could be a candidate, but not just anyone can do that anterior approach. And you yeah. have that special training. Tell us about that. Well, I'm going to uh, correct you a little bit. It's, it's a new approach to some, but I, I went to Belgium in 2004, and that's when I learned the anterior approach. And over you know, more than a decade, we've perfected it. And so now we're teaching other doctors how to do it. So now it's, it's a learning curve. It's new and for everybody else. Yeah, it's, 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 there, there's a learning curve and there's a, a, a process to go through where you can ultimately have everyone, do every person through an anterior approach. But education, cadaveric studies, and visiting people that are doing it is very helpful. What about the amount of pain involved in a hip replacement? Is it the same regardless of the type of approach? No, not, not cutting the muscles. It was really helpful to reduce pain. We also have anesthesia. Um, there's a, again, a little complicated. There's some blocks we can do. There's called a fasciailiacus block, right? Big word. But what it does is it allows us to do a regional block to block the pain receptors. So when we do an anterior hip, much less pain. It's not infrequent for someone to just take Tylenol. And that's it? That's all you might need? And ice. And ice in their drink and on their hip. This is so different than the perception that I think most of us have about hip replacement surgery, where you're envisioning that it's going to be months of of pain and months of being laid up and unable to get around. But that's just not the case anymore. No, it shouldn't be. Now, let's be clear. It's still a big operation. We're just doing it better. And we're reducing the complications, but the risk of complications are not zero. This Actually... The risks are exactly the same. They're just reduced. What about revisions? How often do you have to do a revision when there is that anterior approach? Does it affect it at all? Well, some of the, again, some of the uh, risks, they're irregardless of approach. I'll give you an example. When you put a hip in, there's no cement or glue. It's press fit. It's hammered in. Your body has to heal to those implants like a broken bone healing. And if you don't heal to those implants, you would have to have further surgery. That's irregardless of approach. Infection very, very low risk, but that would require further surgery. Um, and the stuff like periprosthetic fracture, which are big words for having your bones break either during the surgery, after the surgery is reduced in, in my hands anteriorly because I can check with the x-ray machine, 
But that would be another reason for reoperation. And again, it's irregardless of the approach. And for a while, we were hearing things about the particular type of implant, you mm. know, the metal on metal and the problems that develop. That's mm. old history, right? Yeah. We, so back in 2010, roughly, we would do metal on metal to take the plastic out of the picture because that's what wears out. And that created its own problems. Now the standard bearing isn't metal. It's ceramic on plastic. Titanium cup, titanium stem, ceramic liner or ceramic head and a all poly liner. And so this is really giving people their lives back. It's, it yeah. seems like just a, a space age technology almost. But where do you yeah. see hip surgery going from here? Well, we'll, we'll con actually, to be honest with you, it'll eventually be obsolete. It will. The, uh, the people that are doing the gene therapy will help grow new cartilage or really reduce the people's risk of loss of cartilage because of genetic factors, right? And who knows what we'll be able to inject in the hip someday to, to regrow cartilage. Look at the stuff being done in the world of stem cells. You definitely have to separate the the wheat from the chafe with that. But if someone listening or watching is thinking, oh gosh, maybe I'll just wait for that, you no. might have a long wait. Maybe they're grandchildren. <laughs> okay. All right. But well, that's still pretty encouraging. And it seems like the future of knee surgery already has arrived because now there's this really great robotic assistant. Yeah. And I say assistant to make sure everyone understands when you have a robot uh, assisting you in surgery, it's not doing the surgery. You're still using it as a tool. And now Memorial has one called ROSA, which you can even start utilizing before the surgery begins. Tell us about that. Yeah. So knees are a whole different animal. Some bad numbers on these is, if you look at your traditional knee replacement, one in five people are unhappy. So 80% seem to do okay, and 20%, they're not just a little bit dissatisfied, they're unhappy. So there was definitely room for improvement. I did engineer, I was an engineer before I went into medicine, and so I try and apply these principles to the joint replacements. With total knees, way too much guesswork, before things like Rosa came into the picture. So you're right, it's not like I'm sitting on the beach with a keyboard doing knee replacements. Although maybe one day. Maybe one day. Yeah, that would be nice. But what it's allowed me to do is to take the information preoperatively based on patients' radiographs, getting their knee replacements set up on the computer before I touch them, before they even come to the operating room, make some adjustments on, on so many variables that were, were before were just guesswork. So now I got these variables in front of me, no anesthesia time, no bleeding, just adjusting the computer, what I see on the model. Then we apply that in the operating room. So we're still doing an approach to the total knee. We're exposing the joint. We're getting everything ready. Then the robot, via this array, which allows it to see where the knee is in space, allows, and I take some key points off the knee itself, and all of a sudden, what I do is reflected on that computer. So it's like a 3D picture? Well, it's a, th it's a, well, it's a 2D, well, it's like a 3D picture on there, but it's, it's like, okay, example, when I cut a certain amount of bone, or I think I'm gonna, I should cut a certain amount of bone, it's reflected, those, um, that bone cut's reflected on the screen before I do the cut to see if it's right. So external rotation of the femur, I can play with that so that I'm able to put the knee in as, mo as precisely as possible for that patient. It's reducing my soft tissue releases, which is soft tissue trauma. So it's making my balancing better, which means the knee's gonna function better, and, and more technical things like patellofemoral tracking. That is used in conjunction with the standard engineering practices of putting in a total knee. So it gives me a suggestion. I secondarily evaluate that suggestion during the operation. And then once me and Rosa agree, she comes in and helps me place the cutting block 
as what we predetermined it to be. So it, it takes a lot of extraneous, very inaccurate. Instead of shooting with a, with the iron sights, we're shooting with a scope now. So it's really making us much more accurate. And what kind of a difference does that make in recovery then? And then just for someone to walk around on it in the months and years to come. Yeah, so the goal is if I can put the knee in correctly from the get-go, they're going to have a much quicker recovery, but also a more definitive recovery, right? Not one of those 20% that are unhappy. They actually get to the point where they're happy. So what I'm expecting, what I'm seeing is a more stable knee that takes less fiddling around to get it to be right more accurate. And then post-op, we had a gentleman uh, follow up two weeks. He was about ready to come off his cane already. And why? I think it's because the knees put him more accurate. And with that accuracy, less soft tissue damage. So before, without ROSA, there was a possibility, a chance for maybe some problems that could develop. And now these are wiped out? Wiped out? No, they're reduced. Mm -hmm. So you call them outliers. So let's just say 80% of the time you're in the bullseye. Well, 20%, you might not be because those are the unhappy people. But those are people, right? They're individuals. So we want to tighten that down. And so for each variable that I could be more accurate on, I'm less likely to have that outlier. So I'm going to have a happier, more productive patient. Um, Is anybody just, a candidate for that? No. Everybody's a candidate for some sort of increase in accuracy. Like there's, and again, a big word, accelerator, accelerometer technology. This is being something clear about how we do it the old way. Just the distal femoral cut, which is the, the very first cut we make, the old way. I drill a hole in the femur, I put a rod up that femur, and I arbitrarily cut it at, say, five degrees. Where's that rod really going? How centered is it? But is, were you doing that long incision, or are we talking about minimally invasive? No, this was even initially a long incision and then minimally invasive. It's just a, not a very accurate way of making that distal cut. So now whether we use ROSA or we use one of the accelerometer technologies, that cut is accurate. And not only is it accurate, it's checked to make sure that what you cut is right. Um, so is everybody a candidate? The, the people that would not be a candidate for ROSA would have to have, if they have really soft, soft bones, like os bad osteoporosis, because we have to put some guide wires in, those guide wires can't move. Or if someone had really bad skin, um, I wouldn't want to make the accessory portals for, the, for those pins. Other than that, We've done BMIs over 40 and BMIs under 20. Um, so other than that, most people will be candidates. So you're saying people who are heavy could do it and people yes. who aren't as heavy could still be candidates? Yeah. What about age? Is there a particular point where you say, you know what, it's not going to benefit you anymore? We always hear that, oh, a, a knee replacement might not last that long. What do you say? Well, I, I say it. If, if, let's say a knee replacement is going to last you 20 years. Does it really matter how old you are when you have it done, if you're doing it at the right time? My youngest knee replacement is 14. My oldest elective knee replacement is 91. Chronologic age is important, but really it's physiologic age, right? So that 14-year-old missed 100 days of school and couldn't walk. That's why we did her knee. So let's talk longevity. If it just lasts 20 years, she'll have a redo, but she had 20 good years. See what I mean? So it's not it's physiologic Problem, not chronologic age. I don't. I'm not. I don't. I don't know if the words ageism. I don't. I don't. I don't negate operating on someone because they're 85, as long as they're medically 
they, first of all, if they need the surgery, and second, they're medically stable enough to have the surgery. But then I'll bet you're seeing these kinds of replacements, whether it's a hip replacement, a knee replacement, just give people their lives back. Tell us about a success story. You, you mentioned the fellow who might be coming off his cane in uh, after two just two weeks. weeks. Yeah. yeah. What else have you seen? Oh, incredible. Well, had a lady come over from Italy. Um, she hadn't walked, and I'm not. A, this is not embellishing. She hadn't walked for two years because of her hips uh, in a wheelchair. We did both hips at Sarasota. We did one at a time, but she came in a wheelchair and her family sent me video. They didn't want to wait for me to round 24 hours after surgery of her walking with the walker after not having walked at all. That's an extreme case. And she did very well. I, I still get wine from them. No sulfites in that wine. Anyway, <laughs> so then, um, but just locally and, and just every day, you don't want to do a knee replacement because, oh, I, I can't play singles tennis, right? Maybe back off on the tennis. But we can get you back to tennis, hopefully, right? That's the goal. But just p giving people back their life. I had a gentleman today say, I said, why do you want to do this? Why do you want to do this knee? He said, because every decision I make is based on whether this knee can do it. Something as simple as just going to the mall or a grocery store. Those are really the more success stories, getting people back to their activity, daily living, and their quality of life. Dr. Ed Stolarski, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. This is exciting to do, and I really appreciate your time. Okay, time now for today's takeaways. One is don't assume joint replacement is going to be as hard as maybe you've heard it might be. New approaches might help streamline a procedure for you. Two is ask your doctor if he or she is experienced in one of the newer procedures. It does take specialized training and expertise. And number three, if you'd like more information about Sarasota Memorial's orthopedic program, which, by the way, is ranked among the highest in the U.S. and includes the modern procedures that we've been talking about today and much more, just go ahead, give them a call, 941-917-7777. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. For more information, please visit smh.com. Follow us on your favorite social media network.